Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Well, I'm fine. Do you get this sense of the year gearing up? My desk is absolutely groaning with new books. This is what we like, isn't it? And I've got several that I'm slated to read, you know, that I must read in order to review them. One of them, indeed, is a collection of short stories by Margaret Atwood that I'm reviewing for the TLS. I wouldn't mention Brilliant. it otherwise, obviously. Splendid. I've got Salman Rushdie's new book here. I've got Sebastian Barry's new book. I'm, I've got plenty to read, in other words. Good. How about you? The paper is brimming this week, isn't it? Paper is brimming. I mean, it's always brimming. We should say this, first of all. <laughs> It was absolutely brilliant every week, of course. Uh, but yeah, there's lots to get your teeth into this week. There's a big piece by Tim Parks about Italo Calvino. I think it's not Invisible Cities, it's collected nonfiction. Mm. And then there's another piece about Lorca. And um, we're going to review a little known book. You might not have heard much about it. It's called Spare by someone called Prince Harry. I don't know whether you're Never sell, it'll one. never sell. <laughs> we like to shine light where others, where others don't look. <laughs> Who has reviewed that book for the TLS? Nicola Shulman has reviewed it. So if if you like that sort of thing, there it is. I'm sure it's an absolutely brilliant review. We've also got in arts in my section, which I am going to big up, which is outrageous, but I'm going to do it because I can. First piece is about the Fablemans, you know, the Spielberg's semi-autobiographical film, which is going to be out this week, I think. But Lucy, that puts me in mind of our very own podcast. Do you remember a, a while back we had Jonathan Bate talking about the idea of Arcadia? Yes, I do remember that. Really mm. interestingly. And we discovered that Steven Spielberg, and this film is a sort of kind of autobiographical thing, isn't it? Mm, it is, yeah. Talking about how the fact that he came from, Tony came from, is Arcadia. Oh, yes, of course. It's such a brilliant, brilliant detail. He grew up in Arcadia, in fact, didn't he? Mm. We're not, we're not mm. all lucky enough to say that. Yes, and it's a really interesting review because it's. I think the film is, a, is also about, you know, getting interested in film and how that worked and starting to make films and things. I don't want to spoil it, actually. It's just, it's a very good review. So, so I'm not going to tell you. You have to go and look at it. I think you've got a piece about the Sussex landscape, haven't you? Which had, I just piqued my interest because it's where all my mother's family was from. Oh, yeah. And it sounds like a wonderful exhibition. It's on at Pallant House. The subtitle is Chalk, Wood and Water. So Pallant House is in Chichester. It's got lots of um, a real range of different artists and their interpretations, versions, variations of the Sussex landscape. You should go and see it then, clearly. I should do, shouldn't I? Although I mean, we were very much East Sussex. West Sussex is posher. <laughs> East Sussex is included. That's OK. You can okay. go. All right, I you will still do. go. I will do. We've also got a brilliant link between two pieces this week. So there's a piece about the wife of Bath, and we're going to talk to Mary Flannery later. And then also for our afterthoughts, little sort of column that we have at the end, we've got Irina Dumitrescu talking about romance, the idea of the chivalric romance, kind of all the way through to the modern romance, you know, which has now become rather kind of despised as a genre. But I'm very happy to say that she mentions The Lost City, which is a film from last year starring Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum, both very fine comic actors, <laughs> I say. And very underrated Sandra Bullock as a comic actress, don't we think? Do you think she is? I mean, I genuinely do. Or are you joking? She's quite rated generally. No, I'm not. Her and Jennifer Aniston, I watch anything with them doing sort of pratfalls and slapstick. Yeah, I highly recommend Lost City. It is not highbrow, though it does have the heroine is a writer. I'll give it that much. 
And obviously we're going to be talking about Ronald Blythe as well because of the review of his last book. We mentioned him last week. And we have all sorts of delights. So, Alex, what do you do if you want to read all of these things in the TLS? You subscribe, Lucy. (laughs) That's what you do. How do you subscribe? Oh, the usual way. Go to the website and subscribe there. There's all sorts of possibilities and options. So let's get on with some of this great content. Coming up on this week's show, we turn our attention to words from Wormingford as Richard Smith joins us to survey a collection of the writing of Ronald Blythe, the writer of the country who died recently at the age of 100. And we pay tribute to a woman who at over 600 years old is still rosy-cheeked, gap-toothed and determined to have her say. That's a bit like Lucy and me. Mary Flannery is here to assess the enduring appeal of Chaucer's Wife of Bath. But first, we mentioned last week the death of Ronald Blythe, a near legendary chronicler of a particular patch of countryside and country life, whose best known work, Aikenfield, a lightly fictionalised account of village life, was published in 1969. Blythe continued writing throughout his long life and his final book, Next to Nature, A Lifetime in the English Countryside, was published late last year, an anthology of columns that he wrote for the Church Times along with tributes from friends and fellow writers such as Richard Maybe, Alexandra Harris, Olivia Lang and Rowan Williams. Richard Smith has reviewed Next to Nature for us and we're delighted that he's here to talk it through with us. Richard, many thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So you outlined quite early on in your piece the qualities that have earned Blythe, as you say, reverence from two generations Mm. of nature writers. I'm going to do the horrible thing of reading back to you, (laughs) in fact, your own words, because they're so good. So you say it's close observation, close engagement and identification with place, specifically the Mm. Essex-Suffolk border, a degree of learning remarkable in both depth and scope a marvellously fluent and occasionally flashy style. So I would like, rather pedantically, to take these one by one because they're, they're so interesting, if that's all right. Starting with close observation. He was very interested in detail in particular, wasn't he? Absolutely, yeah. But what's interesting about him and what's important about him is that he wasn't a nature writer in the, in the modern sense. And so when you talk about observation, he's not a bird watcher specifically. He's not looking at anything in particular, but he's living very observantly is what he's doing. And you can tell that he's always attentive. He's one of the most attentive writers in the countryside that I know. Um, and when you pair that with his pro style and his ability to express and describe what he sees, well, this is one of the key reasons why he is, as you say, um, so reverenced by country and nature writers. Lucy, yes. will it um, disturb your sort of pedantry and your kind of system that you've got here if I interject just to ask something that I was really it's a good thing to disturb my pedant thank thank you for calling it that I was really I thought you called it that I was taking my cue from you I was really interested in the piece about this distinction between nature writing Mm. and writing of the country or the you don't say countryside you write the country writing I just wondered that just seemed key to me to understanding the sort of Mm. field as it were yeah, well, it's, it's a field that, like most fields of nonfiction in particular, it's shot through with all these subgenres and major and minor categories. And yeah, well, when the nature writing sort of boom started, which is now, what, 20 years ago, I suppose, it quickly made this whole genre of country writing feel slightly obsolete. And I've always slightly considered country writing as something you find in secondhand bookshops, these slightly obscure, fusty mm. volumes, um, you know, from the backwaters of the countryside. Very local kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, and, and can seem very provincial. And people aren't, the writers as a rule, aren't working themselves up into euphorias and high-minded um, lectures on the power of nature. They're just describing the countryside largely. And so when the new nature writing so-called emerged, that it made it all seem a little provincial and, and slow, which is the last thing it is when it's done well. And I think when you when you read Blythe, I mean, I came quite late to Blythe. He was someone who was always referenced, Richard maybe, and other nature writers have constantly referenced him as this great writer. I came quite late to him and I just absolutely wasn't expecting a writer of his flair, I suppose, his pro style. It's very sharp, isn't it? Yeah, he's, and he's not, sharp is a good word. And he's also not afraid to be extravagant in a measured way. But there's real prose uh, flair there in a way that, um, you just don't expect from country writing of this kind. We shouldn't obviously stereotype or, or have expectations of a genre like that, but unfortunately we do. And of that genre of, as you say, country writing, he was in many ways the last man standing who was sort of known and very well respected. And that made him even more special. 
to quote your words back to you again, what you say is we read Blythe for Blythe. You're reading it for the writing. Yeah, absolutely. Which, again, is plagiarism in a minority among writers of this kind. But it's also interesting because there's a contrast, as maybe points out in, in his introduction to this book, there's very little expressly said of Blythe's inner life or even of his personal life beyond the day-to-day sort of goings on of, of church and community. A quote that was cut from my review for reasons of pretentiousness, Flaubert said that the, the writer should be in his work as God is in creation, mm. which I think is very opposite for Blythe and not only because of his religious beliefs, in that he can't help being in there. I mean, you read him and he doesn't tell you how he's feeling particularly, certainly not in any sort of confessional way that we've come to expect from uh, modern nonfiction. Richard, we do have the podcast specifically so that contributors can reinstate their cut, their cut <laughs> lines. Absolutely. And we do, I didn't think that was pretentious at all. I'm on your side. Back to the editor. <laughs> the whole TLS staff being undercut here, but never mind. Do, no, <laughs> As you always should in, in any good writing, the writer is there, is incredibly present in the prose, regardless of how, whether they want to be or not, really. I think maybe says, you know, Blythe was private. He was reluctant to talk about himself. But unfortunately, he <laughs> I'm certain that in the, the writing, he gives away more than he intended to, as all great writers do. I was going to mention that he's, of course, as you say, he is there, but he's not grabbing you by the lapels and saying, this is how I feel about this. He just says, I'm looking at this. There's a wonderful thing he says, I think when he's talking about walking around at night and he, and he mentions a few things and says, it's also perfectly interesting that one might never go to bed. Yeah, Yeah, that's a wonderful thing to say. And it actually does give you a sense of what he was like, because he he could also share that enthusiasm. And he he basically telling you this is I just why should I go to bed? This is so fascinating. But um, sorry, there was another thing that I was going to say to to go back to the thing between nature writing and country writing, which Mm -hmm. is a really interesting sort of line to draw because we've had people on the podcast before who who don't even like the idea of calling it nature writing because it's the that's the us and them kind of idea. Uh, it's very difficult to know what to call it in a way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult. You can work yourself in nuts a little bit. And I think you've got to remember these are essentially publishers' genres, and that's fine. You know, in day-to-day usage, you go into a bookshop, you know, you want to know where to look. <laughs> the books are in a certain order for a reason. So I think people can be a little bit precious about it, speaking as a nature writer myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not a countryside writer. I'm a suburbs writer, if anything. There's a lot made of the fact that he grew up nearby, isn't there? Mm. And he stayed within a relatively small orbit, isn't there? But the trick, yeah. I guess, to it is to not make his observation sound parochial. I mean, parochial in the pejorative sense, because actually he was a he was very involved in his parish. He didn't do that, did he? He managed to to make again. It's about that attention making the particular sort of universal. I guess does that is that what he was doing? I think so. But again, there's another paradox within Blythe, and that's that for all that he was, in as much as one can be, a native of where he was from, and he was of the his family were from the background of Essex Suffolk area. But it would be a mistake to think of him as some sort of hived off, cloistered. Uh, country character I mean he was a literary figure above all and I think that's how you have to read him and he wrote beautifully about an essay he wrote called The Dangerous Idyll in which he writes about John Clare particularly really important writer for Blythe but also about a lot of other writers and artists and the relationship they had between the region the countryside districts in which they worked and their work and their their artistic and creative instincts and John Clare had, had terrible trouble as a poet finding the courage to express himself, finding the opportunities to express himself within a very restrictive countryside farming community. And Blythe writes about that wonderfully because he he did, you know, he writes about the land, but he left the land, in, you know, in a practical sense. He never worked it, as he, as he quite you know, freely said. Um, he lived a, a literary life. He moved in bohemian artistic circles. And yet he got off the land as, as land, as soil, as, as muck, uh, as soon as he was able. Um, and so that's an interesting little contrast in his work, I think. He looks at it as an outsider. You could never say he's an outsider where he lived because it was his heart and soul. But at the same time, he has that distance from, from farming community. He wasn't a participant in that sense. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. yeah again, yeah. he was an observer. It's, very, it's one of those things, I mean, I'm talking as a sort of complete outsider to his mm. work, but there are people, again, literary people, who you think 
it's a certain kind of person who is living in the countryside, apparently quite remotely, and then mm. is suddenly an intimate of Patricia Highsmith, yeah. and Benjamin Britten. And look, I live in the countryside quite remotely, and Benjamin Britten equivalent has not knocked on my door. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny that, isn't my it? Program. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> What's happening here? How did all these connections come come into being? Yeah, I I'm, I'm, I wish I could tell you. And yeah, the same. Well, I live a very um. I live in the suburbs, as I said, but and yeah, the the, the local um, literary society is yet to is yet to summon me. But um, <laughs> what's curious is that when you find sometimes you you talk about these communities uh, of, of artists, of writers, and so on, and and there's tends to be a few hangers on. You know, there's people who tend to get a profile above their merit because purely because they hang about with with the famous. But that doesn't seem to be the case with Blythe. Blythe and his contemporaries, and Britain, Highsmith, Blythe. I mean, those are pretty formidable names to reckon with. And, and I mean, Blythe is just an incredibly gifted writer. And there's no reason why incredibly gifted writers shouldn't sort of spring from farming communities, of course. But um, it is a remarkable coming together of, of people. It really is. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that also he wasn't romantic about any of it. He didn't. He didn't sort of go on about how he was friends with you know um, writers and artists and things, did he? But and also he didn't. With what you're saying about you know he kind of got away from the the muck and the soil. Mm. He didn't romanticize it. He didn't go oh, how wonderful it is to work on the land. He knew it was really hard yeah. work. Yeah. And you know that you were freezing half the time and you weren't paid enough and the hours were atrocious. He wasn't romantic in that sense at all, was he? No, no. Neither about the countryside nor about literature. And what really comes through in his writing for me is a kind of equanimity I think I can only imagine I'm speaking as a as an atheist I can only imagine it, it ties to his profound religious Christian beliefs. It's such an interesting part of your review which sort of takes on that idea of where he allowed Christianity and indeed a sort of mysticism to come in because he was kind of clear that in a sense you have to keep it at bay this yeah. you know euphoric, euphoric vision yeah, yeah yeah you had to keep that at bay but as you say, things creep into the the best writers' work. Yeah, though they maybe not intended it to. It's more mm, to do with mm. a fundamental underpinning vision of of the world and the universe and how it works, rather than you know a feeling that comes to him standing in a field, you know, or, or on a hilltop, uh, which is what was the kind of epiphany we've become used to with more modern nature writing. I think it's just there; it's imminent in the countryside of Wormingford and, and Essex, Suffolk, and the other places he mentions. And it's also tied in with his, his treatment of time is very interesting. He's a very measured writer. He's very um, easeful most of the time, I find. And there's, there's this, always this sense of timelessness in Blythe. And I think he was very conscious of that, the way that he, the way that the past and present are interleaved in his writing, his recollections and his observations. And this, I, again, partly a, a religious thing, I think, a sense of the eternal but also a sense, a countryside thing in that um, the turning of the seasons and the cyclical nature of it. And he has this passage where he talks about round and round we all go, which is the closest he gets well, to a vision, really. Just this, this sense that we, yeah, that we all proceed, the living and the dead and the past and the present all, um, yeah, all moving together in this profound sort of dance. And yeah, that, that's, that's the closest Blythe gets to euphoria, but it's, again, very measured and very... Mm. Beautifully and humanly expressed. Yes, and that whether you are religious or not, I mean, I think you know, as you say, sort of, you can you can strike a chord with with everyone. I would have thought, which is Absolutely, actually really yeah. difficult to do without sounding just kind of banal or like a. You know, like a sort of greetings card or something. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is the thing. What I, what I get in Blythe is, and this is what I find, what I find in all the writers I love is that he's sincere and he's honest, and that doesn't mean that he's prosaic or you know blunt because he's certainly not. But I feel that what comes across is incredibly honest and incredibly human. And I think that's the most important thing in this kind of writing. Mm. There is a, a tiny bit, and, that, you know, one has always got to sort of face these things squarely. But I did, it was a, a note of caution, I thought, in your review. <laughs> you do use the word at, at one point, complacency, for yeah. example. There is something, there are moments when you're not always with him. Is that fair to say? Um. I think there are moments when you're not allowed in. I think mm. that's um, that does strike me, and particularly that makes him stand out. Yeah, there are moments when that the equanimity feels misplaced. 
to me. I mean, there, there's a there's quite heartrending bit where he talks about foot and mouth when the terrible foot and mouth outbreak happened, and the, the the sadness is there, the melancholy is there, but it's it's again tied in with a with a with a sense of timelessness and a sense of you know all manner of things shall be well. Do you mean that it's not it's not it's not political in that in the broadest sense? That's what I mean. Yeah, no, I'd certainly say that's true. Mm. It, it's. Again, it's it's insular, but in the best way. It's it's um, it's calm and it's possessed. And sometimes it maybe just feels a little too self-possessed. And if you have the feeling that, well, perhaps all manner of things will not be well, <laughs> as I do, then yeah, you can sort of come to find yourself at odds with Blythe, I think. But actually, that's presumably was, was part of his deep Christianity as well. I would assume so. Yeah, yeah. like I say, it's difficult to speak to that as a as an atheist, but it does seem to be. That's where it comes from. For an atheist, I think any religion is a form of complacency. And so, yeah. That's, that's... a different podcast, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps consolation. In, you know, perhaps you're sort of consoled from things that, as you say, you, you're not sure if they are going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Be, all, yeah. all is going to be well in yeah. the end. I wanted to ask you just that you mentioned a handful of other writers, Nicola Chester, Ron Ware, mm, Patrick yeah. Galbraith. I was just interested to know where you and, and and in your own work felt that this indefinable genre with contested names and certainly mm-hmm. contested yeah. boundaries, where it was sort of at and where it might be going at the moment. Those particular writers, yeah. I'm not familiar with them, but for example, in the work of you know, somebody like Jessica J. Lee or Melissa Harrison, you know, you, you see these sort of uh, different concerns with countryside and with, with nature writing. Yeah, well, the two writers you mentioned there, again, come from a, again, there's so many splinter, sort of splintering genres. The the three writers I mentioned in my piece, I mentioned because, I guess, following on from what maybe began in the the sort of later part of the new new nature writing boom, you had people like um, uh, John Lewis Stemple, James Rebanks, who are farmers, uh, farming farming backgrounds. That's moved on to people like uh, Ron Ware, Nicola Chester, Patrick Goldbraith, who again are people who know the countryside. So in a way, this is reverting back to, to country writing, which is, you know, a little bit was considered a little bit obsolete. The writers you mentioned are taking nature writing in maybe places it hasn't been before, certainly bringing in uh, different uh, cultural perspectives, different uh, perspectives of landscape, I think most, maybe more suburban or urban viewpoints or more populated countrysides. So nature writing continues to grow in various different directions, but this, um, yeah, I'm really interested in how country writing, as I say, formerly this Fustian uh, thing left on secondhand bookshop shelves, is is uh, finding a new lease of life, and it's mm. all so much of it is off the back of an old life. Mm. Well, maybe part of the cyclical nature of things again. If I yeah. dare to, <laughs> to go back there and to go back again to the cyclical nature, I think we have to now to now stop where we began, more or less. Uh, I never got my four points in their pedantic order, but all the better for that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Richard. Thank that you. Was really Thank fascinating. you. Fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Still to come on the show, Marion Turner's biography of the fictional wife of Bath, perhaps the most famous or notorious of Chaucer's pilgrims. Mary Flannery tells us more. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome back. I'm Alex Clark. Alison, better known as the wife of Bath, is the pilgrim thousands of school kids wish they were taught. I speak from experience because having had the Franklin's tale drummed into me as a teenager, I confess that I struggle to remember much of it. Far more memorable are the bawdiness, the jokes and the forthright injunction that women must take their pleasure where they can find it without regret or shame of the wife of Bath's prologue. Mary Flannery is here to tell us about Marion Turner's new biography of this serial marrier and accomplished raconteur. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Alex. It's wonderful to be here. Well, she is just such an interesting figure to talk about, isn't she? And I I guess what we should do first is say sort of exactly who she is. She's a merchant. She's multiply married. She wears spurs. She's Mm. humorous. She's explicit. She's clearly sexually... Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about Alison, the wife of Bar. Yeah, gosh, there, there is so much to say and it's hard to know where to begin. I did remember that Chaucer sort of begins with the detail that she is some deal deaf. She's a little bit deaf and that's a shame, but somehow that detail makes her leap out to me more. It makes her voice kind of come through a little bit more perhaps, but she is, she is the ultimate wife. She is someone who's been married five times. She's looking for her sixth husband. She is on a pilgrimage and we're told she knows much of wandering by the way, which seems to be a slightly tongue in cheek reference to not just the fact that she's gone on many pilgrimages, this isn't her first, but that she really, she's a bit of a wanderer, a drifter. She she goes off the beaten path. So she is somebody who makes her own way in life. And she does that in fact, through her marriages. And that's what really shines through in her prologue, which is actually, it's the longest prologue in the Canterbury Tales, except for the general prologue, which is only 30 lines longer. And that is because Alison has such a big personality. She is such a character. It's way longer than her tale, isn't it? I mean, the tale is almost like an add-on to her general chat, to her sort of terribly discursive thing. It's a bit like, I feel like I'm, I'm slightly culturally confining us but it makes us sound a little bit like Ronnie Corbett starting one of his one of his stories <laughs> is this aging me and also confining me to, to English Saturday night telly uh I, I won't comment <laughs> <laughs> so let's just say it's a very specific reference it is but it does pick up on something I mean she goes on but there is a chattiness that comes through in the little asides she has you know she is a raconteur. She is somebody who is telling, she keeps telling people, even when she's interrupted, she says, I have not yet started my tale. I'm just getting started here. You know, I have so much more to say. And occasionally she loses her way as well. So you'll have moments where she says, oh, wait, what was I saying? Ah, I have my tale again. And so you just get the feeling of being in the room with someone who is a master storyteller. 
And there is that little squabble, isn't there, among the other pilgrims during the prologue. They, they all start talking between themselves and she kind of has to call them to order mm. and say, not your turn. I'm talking. Mm-hmm, exactly. In fact, the host does stick up for her there, says, let the woman tell her tale, mm-hmm. which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a rare moment of seeing seeing a male character stand up for a female character in in the kind of context of the pilgrimage itself. But yeah, she she really does kind of stand up against these these men who interrupt her not just once, but twice. Two times she's interrupted. And when you remember that she has the longest prologue in all of the Canterbury Tales, perhaps that's some excuse for it. <laughs> but, um, but she really will not be silenced. I love the detail that she's, that she's got a gap between her teeth. Mm-hmm. Because it's such a small, it's like you say about the asides, it's just a little thing, but it immediately you can, you can sort of think of her straight away. She feels much more like a person. Mm-hmm. Than, yeah. than a lot of the others who are reduced also to their I mean I suppose necessarily but they're reduced to their their sort of roles in society as it were. Mm-hmm. No that's absolutely true I mean this is one of the sort of master strokes that we see in Chaucer's depictions of the pilgrims but somehow I, I think one of the reasons why it is so much more powerful in the case of the wife of Bath is that she is herself kind of a composite character. She's made up of all these very well-known anti-feminist, misogynist literary stereotypes that go back, you know, all the way to the Bible and beyond. And so despite that, despite the fact that she's made up of all these bits and pieces, there's a kind of poetic alchemy that occurs. And I think so much of that is dependent on precisely those details, things like the gap in her teeth, the fact that she's a little bit deaf, uh, you know, the colour of the stockings she has on just dispers everything. So she's all the things that you're not supposed to be. She talks too much and she mm-hmm. eyes up people in church when she's at the, the funeral of her other husband. She's mm-hmm. open about liking sex and, and thinking that's fine. And she's the things that you are not supposed to be, but then we like her sort of despite these or because of these. Is Is that the point? That is absolutely the case. I mean, she really is, when you think of it, she's kind of made up of every medieval man's worst nightmare. Uh, You know, the woman who talks too much, who berates her husband, uh, who controls him with sex, who is very sexually voracious, who wants to have her way. And yet the details and the fact that she, she speaks up and then talks back to precisely those kinds of stereotypes, I think that's one of the reasons why she is so engaging. And it's true that even when you look at some of the references to her that we see elsewhere in the Canterbury Tales and in medieval literature and later, you know, there is some criticism in there, but there is something, I think, a kind of wry appreciation for the fact that she is such a lively character. But of course, yes, um, the very things that I think so many medieval readers would have been horrified by, you know, if not clutching pearls, clutching cowls or something like that. Those are precisely the things that modern readers, uh, that my students um, tend to love so much. It strikes me that what she also does, as well as just talking sort of, you know, forthrightly about desire, about often violence within marriage, about um, the pain that is inflicted upon men and women in marriage, mm. is that she's creating an argument she's in her prologue she's setting out an argument and she's saying well why uh when we are told to sort of go forth and multiply when we are told to procreate why should that apply to men only what is it about I mean, she's very explicit about genitalia mm. about body parts why mm. is it that the possession of male genitalia means that you should mm-hmm. take your sexual pleasure where you wish and not women mm. no absolutely she repeatedly points out these kinds of inconsistencies, right? You know, well, this great, uh, you know, church patriarch had this many wives, so then I don't understand what's the problem with me having more than one husband, you know, or she'll talk back to those authorities, you know, precisely as you were saying, saying that, okay, well, yes, it's true that virginity is what we're all told to kind of aspire to, but if we all did, there wouldn't be any more virgins, would there? Because nobody would be having children giving birth uh, and raising them. But I think the other thing that she does is she somehow comes away from these extremes, the extreme uh, perfection of virginity, the extreme kind of horror, the anti-feminist stereotype, and she speaks from a position of ordinariness. And this is um, one of the points that Marion Turner made so beautifully, I think, in her book, which is that she describes the wife of Bath as the first ordinary woman in English literature. 
you know, she's not an ideal and she's also not a nightmare, even though she's made up of all these little components and she's not an allegory. She's real. You know, she, she has everyday experiences, everyday desires. And she also really aspires to that saying, okay, yes, I, for instance, I have, uh, I'm now past what you might call my prime, but I still have a brand that I want to sell. I still have something to give, even if it's not at my best. And I'm going to use it. I'm going to keep Miriam. I'm going to keep having sex. Uh, and then when she's reflecting on virginity and saying, you know, yes, you know, virginity is perfection, she explicitly states immediately afterwards, that am not I. I am not someone who wants to live perfectly. And it's this ordinariness that becomes so extraordinary in her. This business of a biography of a fictional character. You've said a little bit there about what Marianne Turner is, is kind of setting out to do. But I suppose the first thing to address is how you do write a biography of a fictional character, how she does and, and what it is that she's she's seeking to do by doing that. Mm, yeah, no, that's such a great question. And, and one, in fact, that Marianne Turner poses herself. But it did occur to me when I first opened the book, I thought it's true that, you know, if you were to write a biography of a character from the Canterbury Tales, that's that's the only person I'd want to see one about uh, is the wife of Bath. And I think that's partly because Chaucer renders her such a three-dimensional character. But I think one of the reasons behind this notion of a biography for the wife of Bath, it's that she has not only a kind of past, when she comes comes into being in the Canterbury Tales, you know, I talked about all these origins, the textual origins of her character, but she's she then goes on to have a tremendously long afterlife. So she did become somebody who took on life beyond the page, beyond the bounds of the Canterbury Tales, and became this character that you know later writers, later readers uh, remade. Um, thought about, created new backstories for, even created a literal afterlives for her, you know, writing ballads in which she has to argue her way into heaven and stuff like that. So I think that's one of the reasons behind, uh, or it's one of the reasons why the approach of the biography for this particular character works so well. It's really looking at, okay, how did she come to be? How did she come into being? What are her textual and cultural and historical origins? But then what is the life that she goes on to live for the 600 years after Chaucer's death? And you point out, I mean, this was fascinating to me that this happened almost immediately, that, that mm. Chaucer talked about her as a sort of character beyond the bounds of the tales after they mm. were first published. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, first of all, we see a couple of references to her outside of her own tale. So elsewhere in the Canterbury Tales, we have other pilgrims kind of doing callbacks, if you like, and saying, well, you know, as the wife of Bath would say, or if you'd like to know more about marriage, of course, you want to talk to the wife of Bath. But then you also have even other poems in that Chaucer writes that refer to the wife of Bath, like his Envoy to Buckton. This is kind of a short poem where he's warning an acquaintance of his against uh, the evils of marriage, and then urges this acquaintance to go and read the wife of Bath if he wants to know more. So you really have the sense that Chaucer himself has created a character that sort of exceeds him in a way, exceeds what he had planned for her. I mean, she's, she's being referenced already by him and the other thing to note is that, of course, this is a reference he's making, presumably because he believes the person reading the poem will get it, will get the reference and say, ah, yes, I know what you mean by the wife of Bath. So it's tremendous that her afterlife uh, really comes into being even before Chaucer's life ends. I was looking back at our review. We're going to mention it later, I'm sure, about Azadie Smith's sort of newest incarnation of her. And actually, Marion Turner reviewed that for us. And I remember that in her review, she said brilliantly, it was, she, she reviewed it in, um, it was in November, I can't remember, last year, year before, they all blur into each other. Um, but she said, if you haven't bought any stocking fillers yet, maybe you'd like to buy some Wife of Bath mm -hmm. soap, <laughs> which has been... <laughs> has yeah. been marketed very cleverly <laughs> is what women really desire. Well, I'm not mm -hmm. sure that's true. You can also mm. get Wife of Bath cheese, extra mm -hmm. mature. <laughs> it's kind of extraordinary to go from, you know, the, almost the day he wrote it and 600 years later you can buy her soap and her cheese, isn't it? It is. Although I have to say, I, I kind of think the wife of Bath would get it. You know, I yes, sort of feel yes. it. I think she'd she would be flogging it, it to you, I think. She would. She'd be saying, this is how to handle your husbands. You know, let me give you a soap that'll really charm them or something. Yeah. You know, I really think she would approve of that because 
I mean, first of all, there is her commercial background, as Alex was mentioning earlier, but then there is this sense that she she's out to make the most of her life. And I think that she would also see, you know, see that in economic terms as well. You know, this is it's one of the reasons why we see her talk so much about manipulating her husbands. You know, she is hyper aware of just how vulnerable she is as a woman in the Middle Ages. Uh, really dependent on whoever she happens to marry for her sustenance, her survival, her comfort. And so I think that really she would look at these kinds of wares. And first of all, I think she'd be tickled, uh, tickled pink. But I think that also she would look at that and say, well, yes, absolutely. You know, you've got to make whatever you can with whatever you've got. We're talking about this delighted kind of reception of her. But it wasn't always that way, hasn't always been that way. Has I was very struck by that detail in, in your piece that there was a a ballad about her in the 16th century that was burned you know she mm. she was censured as well as celebrated wasn't she absolutely and no that ballad is just it's fascinating it has amazing history it's called the wanton wife of bath and we don't have any copies of it surviving from the end of the 16th century perhaps because they were all burned but what's remarkable is that you know if you look at later incarnations of the ballad which actually a colleague of mine Kristen Haas Curtis is studying you see that it's not really focusing on the things that we note as outrageous to medieval audiences. It just consists of the wife of Bath trying to argue her way into heaven, confronting these various biblical figures who say, you have no right to be here, you've sinned. And she just speaks, she talks back to them and says, well, look at what you did during your own lifetime. You know, you're hardly innocent yourself. And she manages to argue her way all the way up to Jesus, who finally relents and, and lets her in. But you know, so it's not exactly a ballad that you would think to be especially dangerous, but there does seem to be something about the wife of Bath as a kind of unruly character that makes her seem potentially a little bit dangerous, you know, mm. not just as a woman, but I think just as a as a social figure in general. Well, I just I just felt that reading her tale now and reading about it, it's amazing how many of the attitudes to relationships between men and women seem to have just become embedded in the culture. There's this sort of, she does something that you might describe as a sort of treat them mean, keep them keen kind of idea. Mm. That whole uh, thing that, you know, often you'll fall in love with a bad boy, you know, these sort of tropes and, and almost cliches. And then, of course, the darker part of it is, you know, gets very close to a sort of coercive control in a way. And I, I don't know if I'm remembering this wrongly, but you said it right at the beginning that, you know, one of the things that we know about her is she's a little deaf. But that's because she's been one of her husband's hitter, isn't it? Mm, no, exactly. And it is, in fact, her current or at least most recent husband, her fifth, Jenkin, that happens to be the one that she got together with after seeing his legs at her husband, fourth husband's funeral. So it's slightly, slightly kind of a colorful detail there. But she describes herself as marrying him after she is 40 and when he is maybe 20 years younger than she is. So she specifies this. And she talks about how she gives him everything. Uh, she gives him all the wealth that she has compiled and acquired and accumulated from her previous husbands. She gives him control. And then in return, she is just subjected to the most horrific emotional abuse. Uh, he reads her stories of uh, from a book of wicked wives, which essentially is constantly telling her just how wicked women are. And then in the end, she rebels against this and tears a leaf out of the book. He strikes her, knocks her to the floor. And it really is a, a shocking, jarring, brutal moment uh, that comes near the end of what has been a kind of lively and cheerful and pragmatic you know, kind of um, story of her life. And then once it does happen, you, you do sort of wonder, where do we go from this? How can you possibly kind of, you know, is it just a kind of dark turn and are we going to stay here? But, um, and then she describes how she kind of, you know, she, she then pretends to be hurt more than she was until he kind of leans down to apologize and then she hits him back. <laughs> so <laughs> then it's sort of retrieved and recuperated into this kind of knockabout moment. They're both hitting each other, but but it is, I think, especially as a moment that occurs at the end of a long period in which he is just constantly berating her about how horrible women are or were believed to be. Um, it's a really dark moment that stands out in the prologue. I mean, the interesting thing, I guess, is that in all our chat and, you know, we forget her actual story. Mm -hmm. It seems to sort of pale, you know, narratively speaking, into kind of a sort of insignificance. But it does, I mean, it begins with rape. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And I have to say, first of all, Alex, I was so grateful to you for mentioning that we were going to be talking a bit about her prologue <laughs> um, at the beginning, because it's, you know, again, it's it's so easy to forget that she did tell a tale, but it's also easy to conflate her and her character and her prologue with the tale itself. So the tale that she tells is this Arthurian tale about a knight who rapes a young maiden that he happens to be passing in the countryside. And his punishment turns out to be that he will be sent on a quest to find out what women want the most. I think there was a movie a few years ago, wasn't there, with, that, with basically that title? I'm not sure it did actually ascertain what women yeah. really want that movie. <laughs> not sure. <laughs> not sure it got anywhere. I wouldn't be 100% convinced. No. <laughs> and yeah, so he goes on this quest. And what's interesting about the quest as it's described is that we get a whole series of suggestions as to what women want. Oh, they want a man who's good in bed, or they want wealth, or they want fine things, or they want youth or beauty. And then in the end, uh, the knight meets an old woman who seems to be sort of magical and mysterious, who says that she will give him the answer if he gives her whatever she wants. And so it turns out she does have the right answer because the answer seems to be sovereignty. Women want to be able to choose and decide as they want. But then immediately after the knight is told, yes, great, you've got the good answer. She turns around and says, okay, I want to marry him. <laughs> and so this... Uh, you know, all of a sudden the, t the tables are turned, aren't they? The knight who had all this control and exerted it brutally over another woman's body at the beginning of the tale is himself forced to marry somebody he does not want to. Yes, and he does kick up a bit of a fuss about it. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't she transform? Mm. Is that right? Because yes. he, he gets the right answer eventually. Yes, because not only does he find the answer, but then he gets it in the sense that he himself lives it out because they're in bed on their wedding night and we get a, a wonderfully brief but colorful description of how he's writhing in bed and he does not want to approach her. And she keeps saying, my love, why aren't you coming over here? And why aren't we embracing on our wedding night? And finally, in the end, when the old woman turns to him in the bed and says, well, you can either have me young but unfaithful or old and foul as I am, but very faithful, the knight says, well, you choose, you know best. And it's at that moment when she transforms and says, well, well done. And as your reward, you will have a wife who is not only young and beautiful, but also true to you. And so we have a wonderful, happy ending that's kind of wrapped up at the very end of it. Mm. It's amazing, as Alex said, how current these things still are. There are still, as you said, movies being made about you know, people who are apparently superficially not beautiful and then they become beautiful or people find them beautiful. Or mm. I know in the, in the Zadie Smith sort of reworking The Wife of Wilsdon, which I mentioned earlier, there's also a book of Wicked Wives as a version of that. And I think she's reading that it's made up of things from people like Jordan Peterson. So mm. I mean, you don't have to make it up. It's still mm -hmm. it's still all around. <laughs> No, absolutely. And I think that, you know, this has been one of the things that certainly medievalists who are big fans of the Wife of Bath have been troubled to see in recent years is a real increase in this kind of, you can say, incel discourse, anti-feminist discourse. And it's it's so painfully recognizable, you know, especially when you're familiar with someone like the Wife of Bath and all those kinds of stereotypes she is made up of. And I think that it's it's a kind of discourse that comes up precisely because Women like the wife of Bath, who live their own lives, who are forthright, who have their own desires and want to pursue them, can be seen as really threatening by a certain kind of person. I think we're going to have to get some TLS expense account sanctioned soap, though. <laughs> <laughs> I think yes, just for the please. purposes of research. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Yes. I'm going to investigate. What would that. it smell <laughs> of, I wonder? I, I know, I, quite so. Uh, and I mean, you know, I, I am I'm taking it on to lighter ground now. And perhaps one of my favorite findings, because as you say, so many versions of this Pasolini's Canterbury Tales being one, mm. that the wife of Bath's, I think, fifth husband was played by Tom Baker. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Isn't that the most, I mean, in incidental details we discover in the course of making this podcast, that might be one of my favourites. It's a good one. Yeah, it's a good one. He was a bad husband. He was the horrible husband. Was he the fifth one? I think so, but now I'm worried it might be the fourth. Can't No, he must oh, be the fifth. Okay. Whatever the biggest part is, it would be him, wouldn't it? We'll have to have a, a look at it. In terms of, you know, this idea of a fictional biography, it, it sounds, Mary, that you're recommending this to us as a way in to 
understanding Alison, the wife of Bath, and probably to going back to the original prologue and tale itself. Mm, absolutely. And I would definitely recommend that. You can read it either in Middle English or in a modern English translation, and it will still charm and delight. Well, I have to say I hoiked mine out, my sort of university copy, and it's a kind of parallel, you know, facing a facing translation. And, you know, I could make out the odd word or two, but I did. My glance went further to the modern English than it did to the Middle English, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> that's okay we can run a tutorial or something on here if you think that would be helpful you know just get people back to middle english <laughs> i think that would be absolutely ideal and <laughs> afterwards we'll have wine and wife of bath cheese perfect <laughs> extra mature <laughs> <laughs> mary flannery thank you so much that was that was so interesting and insightful and and also i must say like the wife of Earth, also fun <laughs> i had a wonderful time alex thank you so much to you and lucy for having me have time for this week our thanks go to richard smith and mary flannery and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.